Hi, this is Wade here with Let the Bird Fly, doing a cold open as we are encouraging people to consider the fundraising drive that 1517 is doing right now. They are hoping to raise a, a goal of $250,000 by December 31st. As you may have noticed by now, the 1517 Podcast Network has been growing quickly. I think the last number I heard was about 100,000 downloads a month, and they have also begun an online academy, which has been growing as well. I would encourage you to check that out. If you don't currently follow 1517 for their daily blog posts, I'd encourage you to consider doing so. Um, I've had a number of them up lately, and I know the other authors probably uh, bring even more than I do to the table. I oftentimes find them very worthwhile. They've also tripled the number of city events they are offering, and the Here We Still Stand conference was, again, a big success, and they are looking forward to the 2019 conference. Uh, tickets are nearly sold out. So, as they are now looking forward into 2019 and hoping to continue and expand, uh, they are encouraging people to consider them uh, as this time of giving is coming upon us for a gift to help them raise the funds they are hoping will uh, enable them not only to continue the good work they've been doing, but to grow. Uh, we've been very blessed, very fortunate to be a part of the network. We're thankful for the platform they've given us, and I'm thankful for the platform they've given me uh, with my writing as well. And so uh, we wanted to bring that information to you and encourage you to think about it. Uh, we'll now make our way into this Winging It session or episode. Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade, joined in my backyard by Mike and by the lovely Sophia and Anna Johnston. Oh, hey, whoa, hey. I, the the lovely up. Mike as Thank well. You. Yeah, we are. Um, we have a little bit of a, a stockpile of episodes that um, will be coming out in the next few weeks. Peter is faithfully producing them, but um, Peter is still building a room and Ben has been busy with work. They will be back on the podcast more here soon, so we're looking forward to that. But you're going to have a string of uh, Mike and I talking a lot with a, a couple guests in there. <coughs> and uh, you're going to have a little bit of a background noise you'll have noticed now in the backyards. We've been recording at night uh, towards the end when we've done multiple episodes, getting a little bit tired maybe sometimes you're picking up on. But we are here tonight, and we've done a wing in it, but it is not too late. The two girls are still up, um, and they get to be still up at this point, too, because they do not have school yet tomorrow. Uh, Nicholas had his first day of school yesterday at Wisconsin Lutheran High School. He, made, he didn't get kicked mm-hmm. out or anything? Not yet. Nice. And uh, he had his first uh, football scrimmage, freshman football scrimmage today. 
Maggie started today. Freshman started yesterday. Uh, Abigail started today. Is she still going to high school? She didn't drop out? She is doing very well. <laughs> well, good. So we are uh, teasing the free-for-all here a bit, and we'll get to that in just a little while. But let me tell you first what we'll be talking about in the main topic. Um, today we're going to be talking about an essay by a Wisconsin Senate theologian, um, J.P. Kaler, who was uh, writing active during the late 19th century and early 20th century. He was one of three theologians who um, are known as the Wauwatosan theologians, Wauwatosa theologians, uh, and are not famous, I, would, I wouldn't say for, but known as, uh, for their Wauwatosa theology, which is known beyond the Wisconsin Synod, but was especially formative for the Wisconsin Synod. And the essay we're going to be talking about is, I think, one of his most important essays, which is Legalism Among Us. And we're going to talk about what is legalism, what was Kayla reacting to, um, what lessons might there be for us still today from this essay. So we're going to be talking about Legalism Among Us and a little bit on the Wauwatosa theology, but I'm really hoping... And I believe uh, our our friend uh, and a guest of the show, Greg Lyon, campus pastor, has reached out uh, for us already to Peter Prangy, who I would love to get on sometime to talk about the Wauwatosa theology. Because if there's anybody who knows about the Wauwatosa theology and the Wauwatosa theologians, it is Peter Prangy. He has written quite a bit. Before we get to our disclaimer, just a reminder that we are part of the 1517 Podcasting Network. We're very excited to be a part of that. They have a number of podcasts that you might want to check out. Virtue in the Wasteland, Thinking Fellows, um, Ringside with the guys wrestling in the with in the ring. Um, the uh, 40 Minutes in the Old Testament, or is that the New Testament? I think it's 40 in the Old and 30, 30 in, in the, the New. new. Um, banned books, a number of, uh, of podcasts that you might want to check out. If you check out one, you don't like it, it's not your thing, don't worry about it. That's why we have a bunch. We just hope you do make your way back to us. But we appreciate um, the listeners who have been joining us because they were pointed our way, and we hope uh, maybe we're helping listeners find some other resources as well. Uh, not everybody is coming from the same perspective. Not everybody focuses on the same stuff in their podcast. Virtue in the Wasteland gets a lot more into uh, probably history, culture, politics than, than we do, for instance. Thinking Fellows is probably uh, 10 times more disciplined than us. They stick to 45 minutes and, and take one topic at a time. Um, but we're happy to be part of that network. We're appreciative of all that they have been able to do for us. And, uh, and so check that out if you haven't yet. That brings us then to the disclaimer. I don't have the written disclaimer here because Sophia Johnston, who has recited it from memory before, uh, thinks she still has it committed to memory. And so we'll see if she does better than Mike, who, uh, depending on what episode these episodes come out in, a couple of recordings ago, he tried to do it from memory. And uh, we'll see if Sophia can do better than he did. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, most of the time, it probably doesn't speak for ourselves. We will be thinking out loud, a lot, so approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism. Because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you are just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go with me, my friends, and don't let us get in the way. We're back for our free-for-all. 
Um, like Wade said, this may come out a little bit later, but uh, right now we're on the edge of going into a new school year, and so we're going to ask the girls, Anna and Sophia, uh, what they're looking forward to, what they're not looking forward to. Maybe they bought some new clothes or a backpack or something. I don't know. Anything that has to do with back to school. Um, Wade and I are going back to school, not as early as you guys. Um, but let me start off with this. What's your mascot? You guys go to St. John's Evangelical Lutheran School of Milwaukee. What's your mascot? Trojans. Trojans. Very good. Very good. I have a, we should have that for a free for all. We've done, we've done mascots before, but I have some of the best mascots that when I was going to school, I was a Los Cerritos Matador. I was a Ladera Dragon. I don't know what any of those are. <laughs> you don't know I what a Matador some, is? You, have you no. ever seen like a bullfight where the person holds out the, the red cloth and the bull charges? Uh, they hold the red cloth and the bull starts charging. Yeah, that's a matador. And then I was a dragon. That was a pretty cool nickname in grade school. I was a dragon. Los Cerritos was the, uh, my intermediate school, 7th and 8th grade. I was a cardinal. I was an eagle. I, I was, was a, a cardinal. St. Robert Bellarmine Cardinal. Oh, yeah. There yeah. you go. Well, obviously. Cardinals, yeah. right? Was he a cardinal? I believe he was. There you go. That that makes sense. Okay, so, sorry. Two Trojanettes. What are you looking for? Well, first of all, tell me what grade you're going into, and then say what your most, most, what's your most favorite thing you're looking forward to, and then what's your least favorite thing that you're looking forward to. Anna, you got to go first. Uh, what grade? Um, I'm going into fifth grade, and... Um, I'm not looking forward to anything. Oh, stop it. There's got to be something like friends or... No. What about, do you play volleyball or any sports there? Hmm. You don't know? Or you don't know? To be determined. To be determined. She wants to play volleyball, not basketball. I'm sure, well, why don't you stop and think about, I'm sure there's something that you you would like to... You think while I'm talking. Sophia, what grade are you going into? I'm going into third. And the thing I'm looking forward to is seeing my friends. The thing I'm not looking forward to is everything except seeing my friends. You don't like, what about lunchtime? You guys like lunch there? No. What about recess? I mean, that's kind of, you kind of just play with your friends there. Well, that's good. So, and then that's basically what I mean well, by Okay, now school. if you had to pick one of your favorite subjects though, what would that be? I mean, like you got to pick one. Does recess count as a subject? It does not. Well, then I would probably pick art. Anna? Um, Fayed. See, you know, how about not how about not art or Fayed? What's your favorite subject? Or just what you're good at? What? Well, um. But what? I'm good at all the subjects. Okay, what's next then? After art and phys ed, what's next? Nothing. Math, history, uh-huh. English, science. No, Nothing? is the worst. I think oh. we're going to get off to a great Oops. start here at St. John's, I it sounds like. Microphone. How about this question? What, did you get some, like, uh, backpack shoes, clothes, buying? No, I did not go back to school shopping yet. Not yet? What are you looking forward to buying, though? What do you really need? I don't know. My Noelle got a really expensive backpack, and I heard, overheard her mother say twice to her, that's going to last all the way at least to your freshman year in high school because it was so expensive. I don't think it's going to happen. I'm pretty sure that uh, we're going to get a new backpack. How then, much was it? I have no idea, but apparently it was too much. Well, then why'd you get it? Well, I, I have okay. nothing to do with it. You're right. Too much is pretty expensive. All right. So if you had to pick, if I gave you $100 for 
for back to school shopping, what would you get? This guy be for school. I would get. I would get binders and folders. That's She's all... obsessed with binders. Okay, so that's a lot of binders and folders. How many subjects do you have? Usually, I'm not sure. So that's like at max, usually, that's like $20, usually, $25. Usually, what are you going to do with the rest? Usually, you only have to get like two folders and like one binder on the high true. school. Nick right, so, has to get seven binders. All right, Sophia, I gave you $100. What are you going to get for school? And I'd get clothes. I get a pack of pencils. I get a backpack. Like a really cute one, not an ugly one. Like... Okay, you got about you got about sixty dollars left. What are you gonna do? Okay, I forgot. Oh, okay. And I get some some cute erasers. You know those eraser erasers you okay, can like. Okay, you have you have fifty nine dollars left. <laughs> stop it, <laughs> dude. Just stop it. Okay, I want to talk. Um, I would get. You have to pick clothes. What about don't you want to have a lot of different types of outfits you can wear? We can only wear uniforms. Okay, like... Okay, so now you're down to $40. You got your uniforms. They're not that expensive. I don't want uniforms. You know what? It's, uniforms you're going to look back ugly. and say it's really, really good that you had uniforms. Actually, we wouldn't have to wear uniforms if the people in the older class Sophie, classes didn't wear crop tops. Okay, so you got $40 left. What else are you going to get? How about some shoes? What kind of shoes would you get? Tennis. Or, yeah, tennis shoes? I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, tennis shoes. All right. Anna, you got about, like, 50 bucks left. What are you getting? Wait, her? <laughs> yeah, because she only spent money on folders so far. Folders <laughs> and binders. And binders. <laughs> and I'm, I'm getting top of the line binders there, too. You got quite a bit of money left. Um. Yeah, she got $25 are gone, Anna. I get pens. Have I like you guys pens. got a backpack yet? Um, we'll probably just Well, we got one last year, so. All right. (laughs) Every year, my backpack gets something wrong with it, and then mom, like, all right, let's stop the violence. (laughs) There is no violence happening behind the microphone. What's your first day of school? When is it? Wednesday. Wednesday, excellent. Which is crazy, because I I know back in the day we used to start after Labor Day. I don't know why. It can't just be Labor Day to Memorial Day. I don't know why educators and whoever makes this has to be dumb You think you're spending way more on uh, air conditioning and that, doing it now, than if you did it later. But what, what Mike, what was, or maybe I'll share first and then see if you got one. My biggest thing when I was in grade school, which for me was K through 8, because St. Robert's went uh, kindergarten through 8th grade, was uh, when uh, the week before school started, they would post on the glass for the gym doors at St. Robert Bellarmine um, the class list, what teacher you would have and what class you were in. And uh, it was a fairly large school. I want to say we were in the upward upward of 400 um, range for enrollment. And so the big thing was to go and see. There was always teachers that had reputations, whatever else. (coughs) 
you wanted to see if your friends were in your class or not, would be to either ride your bike over or get a ride and go see the class list and either be super excited or terrified. <laughs> um, that's my biggest memory. So when when I was in grade school, we I was a Ladera Dragon, as I mentioned before, and the dragon mascot was straight out of Peter, Paul, and Mary. And this is in Southern California. And so all my teachers were really nice and really kind of, you know, I don't think there was any mean ones. But, yeah, you didn't know. There was always uh, two and a half classes to each uh, to each grade, you know, there was always one grade that had to be like first and second together, and then there would be two other sections of second grade. Maybe, maybe later on it was just maybe two sections. But anyway, um, I think I had pretty good teachers, actually. You bored with that? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Anna, who do you have next year? <laughs> Mr. Robbers. Which is uh, Ziggy and uh, Nick both really enjoyed. Mr. Robbers, are you excited to have Mr. Robbers? Sure. The uh, I know he's very... Uh, into science and stuff like that, so I'm um, sure you'll be doing some fun stuff. Do you know who you have, Sophie? Yes. Who? Mrs. Bodie. And so, Miss Mrs. Bodie. Huh? Sorry. Miss Bodie. I said Mrs. Miss Bodie. Well, I'm sure you'll enjoy that as well. Um, Actually, some people who were in fifth grade, a lot of them say that Mr. Roberts is the most fun teacher. So, or Mr. Sable. Well, he'll be happy to hear that. I, I think he maybe listens sometimes. Um, I got really nervous you were going to say something mean there about someone. Like, we're going to have to edit that <laughs> yeah. one out. What, um, are you, and you're excited to see your friends, aren't you? Mm, some of them. What, uh, how many recesses do you get this year, Sophie? Do you still get three? Yes. Yikes, they do anything. But I only get one. You only get one now, Anna? <laughs> yes, because, yes. So... But you probably get more learning now, which is well, which is what you do about. get. You're lucky. You get more recesses than high schoolers and college people. You get way more, so <laughs> it's only two more. Well, while while, more. while we're out in the backyard, and before we wrap up the free for all, um, why don't you tell our listeners what you did to our poor dog earlier today? Oh, um, so our dog was in the backyard. What's our dog's name? Shotzi. What type of dog is she? A black lab. Okay. Trust um, Anna to steal the story. Um, and she was going to the bathroom, so I came out to let her back into the house. And I called her name so she would come. And then um, she was, like, sniffing and, like, I think about to grab a baby bunny in her mouth. And, actually, and so, yeah. And actually, I think there's two of them. Because I saw one moving around, and then I saw another moving around. So why didn't you let nature take its course? Because it was a baby bunny. Baby bunnies are not food. Really? Unless you live in Thailand. I, there's some, okay, there's some nice I'm going to apologize for I don't even know where that came from I'm going to apologize to any like, listeners in There's some nice German rabbits. restaurants You know Germans rabbit. eat rabbits, right? Oh, Germans are, I know there's a lot of your, I bet your grandparents have eaten rabbit No, that's yes. brutal they, People used to raise rabbits to eat them Okay, there's a story I want to tell But no, I'm not going to tell it We're going to eat rabbit uh, this year sometime. No thanks. Yep, we're going to go to a German restaurant and we're Okay, after gonna this I'm going to tell you a story. All right, and well, you're let's not going to ever eat rabbit again because okay, it's going to make you sad. We'll and do I'm this unless point. it's a, a mean story, but 
We'll do this, and then we'll make our way to the main topic. Go ahead, Sophie. No, I'm not going to tell you the story. Oh, okay. It's kind of <clears throat> sad. So uh, if you uh, if you think the girl should have let Shotzi have her, her meal, um, lived well, her life as a dog, then feel free to email us already, at... Uh, it could have already just been dead. Let the dog eat at podcast.com or whatever. <laughs> if you uh, think Anna and Sophie were right, <laughs> you can email us at um, save the bunny at whatever it is that Peter says our email address is. I'm sure it's somewhere on our website. Um, that being said, ladies, we thank you for joining us. Do you have any thoughts on legalism among us? No. Do you know what legalism but is? But I do want to tell you something. So Maggie, she's doing her homework, and she has a bunch of, a bunch of these things that they're, they're powder, and you put them in water and you can make lemonade, and she just has a bunch of those in the van, and she doesn't have a water bottle. She didn't take them out, that's why. Oh, she didn't? That's no, an interesting the turn there. Well, I'm sure our listeners are very curious. We will update you on the lemonade situation. And with that, uh, Mike, what do you say we uh, make our way into the main topic? I think so. And we're back with our main topic. Today we're going to discuss J.P. Kaler's uh, essay, Legalism Among Us. Um, you can find it in a three-volume series uh, published by Northwestern Pre- Publishing House called The Wauwatosa Theology. We are in volume number two. It is a collection of works by Kaler, um, August Pieper, and what's Schaller's first name? Why am I... Johan, is Johan, it? yeah. I was going to say John Schaller, but I didn't want to make a mistake there. Um, <clears throat> I should know that. Um, so uh, some of the... Early major Wisconsin Synod theologians. Um, our seminary at one time was located in the suburb of Milwaukee called Wauwatosa. Later, in fact, during these guys' time, now at least Kaler's time, yeah, um, this in, certainly Kaler's time, um, uh, the seminary was moved to a northern suburb called uh, Thienesville. Now it's really Mequon is a is a larger city that surrounds Thienesville. And a shout out to the Missouri Synod. It was a Missouri Synod farmer who donated some very very beautiful land, where now we have a beautiful campus there, designed after the Wartburg Castle in Germany, and it's uh, really an ide- idealistic place to uh, study theology. Anyway, idealic. I think you mean. Idealic, not idealistic. Yeah, you're right. And anyway, that may may dovetail into our legalism discussion. But anyway, um, (laughs) so legalism among us. So Kaler, I don't know when he wrote this exactly, but he is, I think, late 19th century, early 20th century. Yeah, it appeared in the uh, Theologische Quartalschrift, the Theological Quarterly, um, volumes four of... um, or volume 11, number 4, 1914, and then volume 12, numbers 1 through 3 in 1915. And I, I believe it's, he says it's prompted by something that was came up at a conference. And so it could have been written, he could have been writing it as early as maybe 1908, 1909. And Kaler's got an interesting history, and I'll leave that to you how much you want to bring into Wade. Um, but uh, ends up outside of the Wisconsin Synod in the end, and so kind of a interesting twist there at the end. But, um, Wade, I'll kick it to you, and you can tell us maybe an overview of this document or, or Kaler, wherever you want to go. Sure, and I, I don't want to uh, s- um, steal thunder from a possible future episode. I would really like to do one on the Wauwatosa Theology, and I think maybe even one on the Bites paper, <clears throat> which is what leads to um, Kaler being removed from Synod, um, and the uh, kind of emergence of the Protestant Conference, uh, this small kind of um, 
not very tight-knit group of people who will leave over this reaction to a Bites paper, a Bites paper that was given um, questioning uh, some things that had happened in the Senate, particularly at the Senate's um, college, Northwestern College. Um, how it was being handled came down probably rather heavy-handed and legalistic, um, <clears throat> perhaps. Um, but then Kaler saw the reaction to that also as perhaps being legalistic. Um, but those are, are probably good topics for another day. Um, but the kind of background on Kaler himself, he's the son of an immigrant pastor, uh, I believe John Philip Kaler. So he'd be second generation um, in America, um, becomes a pastor himself, served for a while in Two Rivers, Wisconsin. Uh, I want to say I seven, believe it's pronounced Twivers. Yeah, I, I was trying to remember how they say it up there. Um, I believe he was there seven or eight years. I'm not positive. That was called at Northwestern College. At Northwestern College, he oversaw just a ton of the operations. Um, kind of got wore out, and I believe on doctor's orders, kind of had to, to step down from some of his roles. Um, but then is called to Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, or what is Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary today, um, to teach church history, and I believe exegetical theology. And he will write the history of the Wisconsin Synod, um, and was really, a, I would say, a fresh and a refreshing mind. Uh, I don't always agree with everything um, Kaler has to say, but I've, I've come to appreciate him more and more as I uh, kind of grow um, as a theologian. And uh, he uh, is going to react against um, too much emphasis on systematic theology or proof texting or... Um, dogmatizing, however we want to say it, and is going to really emphasize the need to study things um, through a historical exegetical method um, in their context, doing exegesis, uh, not coming in with um, predetermined uh, stances, although we all do that, right? He's not saying there shouldn't be doctrinal statements, but trying to go to the scriptures as much as possible um, to mind them for what they have to say. Uh, obviously, he was a confessional Lutheran. He subscribed to the Book of Concord. He, he was confident that the scriptures taught what the Book of Concord taught, but he didn't think, for instance, that you should go in and read the Book of Concord into the scriptures. You should study the scriptures and then rejoice that they confess what the Book of Concord um, confesses. So one of the lines, um, I believe it's a professor from uh, MLC, uh, David Selno, has a paper he had given, in the and it's in the Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary essay file, um, and he kind of is quoting a little bit uh, how Kaler approached things. And he quotes from, uh, I believe it's Lee Jordan is how, uh, would be the first name, but, uh, Jordahl, sorry, who wrote the introduction to the history of the Wisconsin Synod, which was translated and, or published later. And, uh, I think it kind of sums it up well, uh, the prevailing methodology against which Kaler was reacting then has been described in the extreme. Um, so this is obviously Jordahl uh, is com coming from a Protestant background, but an unprincipled rummaging through the Bible to find proof passages for positions already determined ahead of time. <clears throat> and I think uh, while that's probably um, overstatement by someone who's very invested in this controversy, <clears throat> it does capture uh, some of what the Wabatosan theologians and uh, Kaler were reacting against. <coughs> and um, Kaler's going to say it in the essay itself, is the Bible is not a codex of proof passages. Um, and that you can actually do a disservice to exegesis when you go in um, with your conclusions already 
set or determined. Um, the need to go freshly to the scriptures again and again. Uh, so he reacts against what he calls father theology, which is, uh, you know, simply, well, this is what our father said. And he, he warns that that's not something that just <coughs> Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy were susceptible to, but the Lutheranism had fallen susceptible to it as well. And this is something I remember in seminary thinking, oh, that's just overkill, because I don't think we did study enough of what our church fathers actually did say. And so I was reacting on the other side, but I've, I've really come through studying our church fathers and church history, and in fact, um, as part of what pushed me to do a PhD in it, to come to think, you know, Kayla really was on to something, because even in our own circles, you know, I kind of gotten a kick out of, I get to go to a lot of pastors' conferences, and I've been at more than one where someone would say, you know, well, we're not the Missouri Synod, we don't do father theology, or we're not whatever church body, it's usually Missouri, um, and then they say, and I've got that written down right here. A seminary professor said that <laughs> it's written down in my triglata, and I always kind of laugh. Um, you've just changed your fathers, right? You're still doing father theology, and we've hit on this in a couple other episodes. Um, but the importance of uh, my scripture is is God's word, um, and it is is God's word not to be added to or taken away from. But scripture is also God's word that that speaks to people across uh, ethnic boundaries. Across temporal boundaries, um, in various languages, and it's something that needs to be applied contextually as well. And so, God comes to the sinner today, and the sinner today in 21st century America is maybe different than the sinner today in 14th century uh, China. Let's say um, what they're wrestling with, uh, the law that's been at work on them societally what they need to be convicted of, the images you might need to use to convey the gospel, um, you know, what parables might apply best, for instance, or be most powerful. <coughs> These are things that we need to be able to go to the scriptures afresh for. Um, you know, even when we look at church and state, well, what what's the biblical take on the two kingdoms or church and state? Well, how that is applied is going to be very different in different settings under a monarchy, in a democracy, Um Whatever the case may be, right, applying this is going to largely depend on the context in which you are. That doesn't mean forfeiting it by any means. Um, but these are just a few examples of, of why we need to be able to uh, avoid and we'll get into the two ditches that he talks about of traditionalism or intellectualism. Yeah, he, he, he this is a wide-ranging article, and he does talk about the the personal legalism that I may have of my motivation being from, from the law, but then he also, and maybe talks, we should define that first, what legalism is, what you're doing now. Yeah. And then he also talks about, um, uh, so the motivation is coming from the law, not the gospel, not the gospel. Um, you know, uh, the bravado of orthodoxy on a personal level, but also on a, uh, synodical or denominational level. And then he, he really does go against traditionalism or father theology, as you had mentioned. And, um, really kind of rails on that a little bit and even, and doesn't pull any punches about that, about people who have a sense of being kind of in charge and being, I don't know, dictatorial, um, can use the Bible in a very legalistic way. Um, and, and you're right. It's not dead. Uh, you know, I've heard people say, well, <laughs> you know, this seminary professor said this, so there you go. And from various backgrounds. I mean, this could be someone who went to Dallas yeah, Theological Seminary, yeah. and, quoting Wallace or and, whatever the case and, may be. And, and, the impl- and, 
you know, that's fine. You know, we do that all the time. It's good to say, hey, you know, Luther said this, but you can't at the same time say Johnston said, yeah, well, we go, yeah. You can't just also say, well, we then we don't do father theology. Like you said, you've just switched your fathers. You, you, what you did is you just erased 1500 years of, 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 of theology, 1500 years of fathers. And that, 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 that can be very troublesome. And quite frankly, it's lazy. It's easier just to say, um, this person said that at the same time, um, you know, your, your indication earlier there about, Hey, you know, we ought to really understand from a historical perspective, what's going on and what, what they said back then. We are all about history here on this podcast. That's for sure. Um, but you, the point is it's not a trump card ever. Luther's not a trump card. Augustine's not a trump card. The Wabatosa theologians are not a trump card either. And he points at this out and says, hey, this is the legalism among us right now, and very pastoral in that way, in the law anyway, by saying, hey, it's easy to point the finger at everybody else, but the legalism among us is what this uh, this article is going to be about. And uh, boy, it, it doesn't go away, does it? It's always going to be there. And that's one of Kaler's gifts, is that he's, he's very um, good at saying, hey, let's look in our own eye um, even as we do discuss um, disturbing trends among other other church bodies, and you know, I, 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 we might have some listeners, especially from the Wisconsin Synod, who, who are, think, "Oh, Wade's bashing the Wisconsin Synod, kind of poking fun about the father theology." But I would remind you, it was my idea, and we're doing an episode on a Wisconsin Synod father, and I'm saying we should listen to what he has to say. So um, I am, in essence, appealing to Kaler. What I, I what I'm trying to point out is. Everyone, to some extent, does father theology, and they need to be cognizant of it. There are benefits um, from the fathers, um, but to, to not be blind to um, our own biases or defaults is, is kind of what what I'm getting at as well, because there'd be nothing less Wauwatosan um, than to fall into the rut of doing so. And so there is something appealing to me, and I've been reading back through these Wauwatosa theology volumes a lot um, and I just really enjoy Kaler. I enjoy Schaller too. Um, August Pieper. Schaller who died too early, so he he doesn't, you know, he, he's got a lot of articles in there, but right. but uh, probably not the mature articles that maybe the others do just because he had died so early. But yeah, yeah. and August Pieper, brilliant as well, but a little more dogmatic. Uh, the German's very hard to, to get through. Um, but uh, I, I think it's helpful to look back and, and, and maybe let that clarion call still sound of... Um, you know, to ask us to look among us as well. And and I say this to myself, to look especially to myself. I mean, I'm someone who teaches a Luther course. I'm someone who focuses especially on um, Luther's theology and then um, the theology leading up to the formula of Concord. Uh, I mean, this is my thing. This is something I have and I do easily fall into. Um, and maybe, maybe just one point. Yep. The father theology doesn't necessarily mean, oh, so-and-so said. It can also mean... Here's the doctrine of the church, and then, as you said, go to the scriptures looking for proof passages to then back your already preconceived notion of what it is. And the doctrine itself may not be incorrect. I'm not necessarily saying that. But, it, but, but when you have a very shallow understanding of the doctrine, which we all do of every doctrine, and then you say, aha, I found this passage— that can be a little bit 
that can be a little bit dangerous. And so the father theology can also be, here's our confession. Now I'm going to shoehorn specific passages into that. And um, instead of maybe actually learning the history of this doctrine and saying, okay, what were the debates? And maybe it was more about emphasis rather than it was about strict orthodoxy versus heterodox. And then heterodoxy. And then I think this is what he was getting at earlier in his essay is this bravado of orthodoxy, right? This, we got it right. And we kind of joke, um, and I was never taught this, but there was certainly a feeling of that growing up in the Wisconsin Synod that it's wells are dead, right? You, you're Wisconsin Synod or you're going to hell. And, uh, that, Which that's, I've never actually heard anyone say. No, it's the impression it's that the can impression be given is what Mike is saying. And now this is, this is not unique to the Wisconsin Synod. <laughs> this is, <laughs> it's in Missouri. It's a, <laughs> it is most certainly in the Roman Catholic Church, yeah. at least in the past. Yeah. And uh, you, you're, you're going to find that even tenfold in, the, in many Protestant denominations because, uh, y- you know, there, there are plenty of Baptists that think Roman, all Roman Catholics are going to hell. Right. So it, it is not unique to the Wisconsin Synod. Um, but that bravado of orthodoxy can really put up some barriers, not only to evangelism, to true ecumenical work, but also to uh, a personal repentance and a per- personal humility when it comes to the scriptures. Yeah, and that's he's going to get at that later. You know, if, um, it, this it limits ecumenicism in that we see our our church body as church in a way that other church bodies aren't church. Um, <clears throat> maybe just a little bit more on the father theology is I would just say maybe a helpful way to think of it is when we read the scriptures and we read the fathers, uh, especially for pastors, it might be helpful to think of it as a, a pastor study group that we're called to read the scriptures with the fathers, not under the fathers. Um, there's no more Lutheran thing than thinking that the fathers, uh, no less Lutheran thing that is than thinking that the fathers could not have erred. Um, there would not have been a Lutheran Reformation if it weren't for the Reformers saying, um, we respect the fathers, and the early Lutherans are the first to do real patristic work, but there were times where they were not as clear as they could have been or where they erred because they are human. Um, and really, a Lutheran church that's going to live in a life of repentance needs to be very cognizant that the gospel is something that each generation needs to own, and we need to be aware that we can err, those before us can have erred, our children can err, which is why we try to educate for the future and also really have a, a, a grasp on <clears throat> the past. And so um, it's not dismissive of the fathers at all, um, but it is to understand that, uh, that that God's word is so rich and so important and so deep um, that we do it a disservice. It, it would be like... Um, Having someone who, uh, you know, you're going to uh, some new city and someone has highlighted the, the Stadtplan, the city plan, and then you're going to go and you're going to see the two sites that they highlighted and then say, oh, there's no point walking around the rest of the city. This is what matters. Um, I would say that's not a very good way to travel, and uh, it maybe restricts you getting as much as you could out of uh, that vacation or that trip. If we can maybe just with legalism, uh, to go back a little more to what it is. So legalism is um, being motivated by the law rather than by the gospel. Obviously, this is problematic for the gospel or for the Christian. Um, it's also looking to the law to do what the law is not given to do, um, namely to create faith, um, to bring about 
true spontaneous good works, which are the work of Christ through us by the gospel alone. Um, now the law describes good works. I don't. I don't. Um, deny that at all and the law admonishes and instructs in good works um, but it's to ask of the law what the law isn't given to do or to use the law in realms that God has not um, given the law to be what predominates or what is the last voice for instance in the church um, to try to govern the church um, to maintain uh, orthodoxy and the preservation of the faith um more by law than by gospel, Kaler is going to say is equally problematic um, because you may get an obedience and you may preserve the church for a while with that, um, but it's it's kind of like a uh, a tree that uh, you know you you spray with a uh, with a bunch of Roundup. Uh, it may live for a while. You may I mean you kill the weeds around it. You right you spray all around its roots. You get rid of the weeds for now. But you're also probably impacting the future life of that church. Um, you're stagnating it to a, a great extent. Um, Mike, you just showed me radar. It's, you haven't felt rain yet, have you? Maybe a couple drops here. So we may have a we may have a break here in a few minutes, but uh, we will finish the episode. Yeah, um, um, I should. I don't know if we should, we'll plan on just going in the house probably if it does start to come down. But sure. And I I thinking about. Kaler, after I reread this uh, this week again, read it a long time ago. Um, I noticed the date that I bought it was 2002, so it's been it's been a while since uh, I, I looked through this. Um, but the whole idea of um, legalism being something that is a misunderstanding of the law, that the Christian is freed from the law in that certain sense. And then once they're freed from the law, no longer condemning them, the law becomes something different than something that you want to do, something that's joyful. Now, he didn't go into this explicitly, but the idea that we are sinners and saints, and so it's all mixed up, of course, because our old Adam still is is existent. Um, but um, that personal misunderstanding of who I am under Christ then manifests itself in a very ugly way when I have this bravado of my own sanctification or bravado of orthodoxy. And then if you can combine that with uh, institutional bravado of orthodoxy, combine that again then with people who are maybe more dis, uh, disposed to... Um, uh, kind of a dictatorial kind of way of thinking and doing things, um, you can have uh, what he he describes here as um, uh, policing. Well, he didn't say that word, but policing. But that's what he's after, yeah. Policing doctrine, not by the motivation of the gospel and the truth and evangelism, but by we got it right and you better get in line here. And, and I think it manifests itself in this way that people who are in places of power and certainly I'm not talking about anybody and certainly doesn't have to be this way but people it's in the history of the church you can pick any age yeah, of the church it, we're, we're not and we're not immune to that but people in power then um, instead of making the case and being uh, for their for their position instead of trying to motivate with the gospel and love instead of being charitable and patient um, 
resort to legalism. And I would say often resort to fear mongering. If we don't fix this, then the whole church is going to crumble because this is so darn important and our synod or our church or our congregation or our denomination is the true church. And so you have the bravado of orthodoxy, uh, then without thoughtfulness and love and charity emanating from the gospel and you have what he describes as legalism. So, And, and this can come up in the parish very often too. And this, is, I, I hit on this when Pastor Borland was with us. Um, I don't know when that episode will come out, if it'll be before or after this, but um, we, we were up pretty late that night. So I don't know how much sense I was making at that point, but um, you were brilliant. Yeah. That we, when we start to view people in the abstract or people who are, um, uh, well, Sometimes when a pastor says, I'm responsible for the souls of my care, that is true, but it's also not true, if, the, if that makes sense. But when they become abstract and not concrete, so you have a person who is living in some sort of sin or is maybe struggling with some sort of doctrine, um, you can approach that from a gospel aspect. And yes, you're going to have to preach law and um, share the law with them, but you can come from a gospel perspective of you want to bear with that person and help win them back. You're very concerned about their soul. Or you can approach from a legalistic perspective in which you want to maintain your purity and the purity of your church, and you don't want to have to go to your circuit and be the guy who's got a person who's struggling with this doctrine or who's in, living in this sin. And um, and then you can, right, you've got to purge this thing or you've got to come down hard to try to fix the thing quickly. Those are two very different approaches. Um, and he's going to get at later in this essay, it comes down to sanctifi- sanctification too, um, that that we can fall into the temptation of thinking sanctification is primarily going to be a function of the law and forget that sanctification at the end of the day is the, the working of God's voice of preaching and there will only be sanctification where the gospel is preached. <clears throat> and so somewhat losing sight of, I would say, the sinner, but also losing sight of um, the whole reason that the church exists um, as, you know, um, stewards of the of the mysteries of, of God. Um Maybe, Mike, if we want to jump to a little bit, he's going to talk about traditionalism um, and intellectualism. And I'm going to have to find the page. uh, I think he he hits on traditionalism first. Um, Let me see. Oh, here we go. Uh, And so, just as an example of how legalism can express itself, uh, you know, one of the things I get a kick out of is we just had again recently the Pharisee and the tax collector. And if you listen to Lutherans talk about that sometimes, it can actually turn into the opposite of what Jesus was after. We can end up saying, thank God I'm not like that Pharisee, Um, which is just as bad as thank God I'm not like that tax collector. You're you're still then delighting in your sanctification or your own self righteousness, which you've now attached to being humble. You know, I'm such a uh, I'm such a humble sinner. Um, but he, uh, if I can, with some light here, maybe read some of this. The the bravado of orthodoxy feeds on the factious spirit, which opposes the ecumenical spirit. And here he's talking about good ecumenicism, not false ecumenicism, but you know that which seeks to uh, find unity in the truth. For that reason, it gets caught up in words instead of living in the facts. The result is traditionalism, which has lost the spirit of the words, the spirit of the gospel. All of this is of a legalistic nature and opposes the gospel and shows uh, (coughs) that in the course of doctrinal controversy, the adherence to orthodoxy has deserted the basis of the gospel. Um, 
And so traditionalism being um, wherein trying to um, uphold our orthodoxy um, and trying to take a stand even for that which is good and, and right, um, we lose the spirit of the gospel. We, we cease to be gospel people. Um, rather, we fall into hand-wringing or bullying um, or even into maybe speaking true things in a way, though, that unnecessarily is going to alienate the very people that we want to <clears throat> to reach. Um, we fall back on that an us-them mentality, um, which can become very uh, dangerous. And so he says that the gospel should remain pure as self-evident, for without the truth of the gospel, unless one has understood the gospel correctly, one cannot believe, one cannot come to faith. However, keeping the gospel pure is not an immediate interest of evangelical preaching, but it is rather a secondary goal. And I like how he says that, that at the end of the day is preaching the gospel and sinners being forgiven. And then after that comes the preserving of the church's doctrine. You don't pit them against each other, <coughs> but even the Orthodox, even the saints in your pews only live and, and stay in the faith through the gospel itself. Yeah, and the second thing there was intellectualism, and I don't know if I quite got what he was saying there. This is how I take it, and Wade, you can uh, expand or correct me. Um, but you can have this intellectual understanding of maybe, let's say, doctrine, or you may be this great exegete or something like that, and you divorce that from uh, the context and from people, right? And um, uh, theology then occurs in a vacuum, and I'm... I'm not saying that Kaler said this, but just my own thoughts. Um, and we, we kind of talked about before how the, you know, someone may say, well, that seminary professor said that, and that's just doing father theology, which is fine. I just admit it, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, and, and, and realize that uh, if you're, if you're calling somebody a father theologian, if that can be understood correctly, that be careful that you don't fall into that as well. Um, but, uh, to defend kind of at least our seminary, Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, and, and probably grew out of this Wauwatosan understanding of how to do doctrine, that it was, our seminary was very careful not to come down with a whole lot of statements all the time, right? Um, we're not the ones that are going to answer all of the, the problems. Um, and I think there was a correct humility there um, that said, there's pastors out there that are living this doctrine with real people every day, right? And they have a, a privately a pretty good perspective and they know their stuff as well. But also the danger of falling into it, well, we're this group of guys that what we say goes. And well, you've just replaced the Pope with an oligarchy, right? You know, and so um, the Wisconsin Synod has been, I think, pretty good at that historically. Again, I'm not a historian and we'll have to wait for for other guests to come on and, and maybe talk to that. But uh, just a, just something to think about, too. I know that I, I very much disliked it when a member of mine would come up and say, um, I have this question that a friend or maybe even a friend within the congregation we've been debating about um, or a specific situation of, uh, of cause, a casuistry, um, well, what's the answer? Not like, help me through this, not point me to the scripture, but what's the correct thing? And, and I would back off a lot and say, you know what? I, 
don't put me on the spot like that, first of all. And second of all, it's not, I'm not the authority, right? And try to work, you know, try to play both sides and try to say, well, some people say this, some people say this, go back to scripture. Um, but, but the idea of the local pastor giving these, um, you know, I don't know what you, what's the right term, you know, just a, a pronouncement of, of orthodoxy, it can be problematic as well. Yeah, and I think oftentimes you'll see when someone is quick to try to appeal to a, some ecclesiastical authority outside of Scripture, and I mean they're quick to do this. It's not like, you know, um, there are there there's a need for church discipline in the parish. There's a need for church discipline in church bodies. Um, but when someone is quick and vocal to try to appeal to authority right away to win a case, oftentimes it's a sign that they're actually least confident or least able to defend their own position that they're trying to articulate um there is something to being willing to to have a discussion and so what yeah what Keeler's getting at with intellectualism which is the second prong he's kind of responding to here um is when the emphasis is put on um he says intellectual comprehension instead of the inner con uh conquest of the heart uh, in other words he's saying um when scripture especially the gospel is turned into a law um for which one demands a rational assent yeah i really he's got three points there right that it's the intellectual comprehension is above the inner conquest of the heart i like this number two point he makes spinning wheels with words instead of persistently dealing with the realities and then number three turning the words of scripture especially of the gospel into a law for which one demands, and he highlights demands, demands rational assent. So what he's saying is, I'm smarter than you, I know this, and is going to use a bunch of fancy words, and this can be true of somebody who is an exegete or somebody who is a dogmatician, and then say, I demand that you agree, you assent to this. I think that's what he's getting Which at. can lead to work righteousness of its own, um, you know, to kind of where you have, you know, the old joke of the good uh, Irishman back in the day who um, said, what do you believe? And he said, I believe what the Pope believes. And then he was asked, well, what does the Pope believe? And he said, I don't know, but I believe it. Um, lots of denominations, lots of parishes, lots of um, church groups can give the impression sometimes that so long as you're believing the right thing and belonging to the right thing, you're good. And what does that really do that diminishes faith um, and it diminishes the role of the gospel. We turn what should be a good thing, a church a, is a good thing, um, and we give the impression um, that belonging to that or being in that is ultimately what matters. Um, no, you ought to want to believe and belong to something, and historically American Lutherans have been good to this, which is why we don't sheep steal historically, <clears throat> is you should want to be belong to and, and believe something because... Uh, because it's correct, right? Because you've been convinced of it by Scripture. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I ever believe a pastor who can honestly tell me he's never once wrestled with a biblical teaching, you know, that that he's never had his doubts. Um, I just don't know how that's possible. Well, how can we expect that of our members or of others if we're not willing to sometimes work through that together? And really, I think that can really, it, um, I'm saying really a lot, reveal an insecurity in the person who wants to demand that um, more than a, def a defect or default in the person who has questions. 
And it can lead then to a bad way to approach the scriptures. And so he uses the example, and I've not done the acts of Jesus on this, so I can't say if I agree or, or disagree with him. But of Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture inspired by God is useful, etc., being used for um, the doctrine of inspiration or the inerrancy of scripture. He says, you know, we want to uphold inerrancy and we think that has to be the starting point. And so we go to that and we say, oh, we can use this passage. And then he goes on to say, but that's maybe not the best way to translate that passage. And he's not saying that we shouldn't uphold the doctrine of inspiration. He's saying you kind of undermine the doctrine of inspiration when you try to pigeonhole something into supporting it that doesn't maybe, because you give the impression, well, if then if this doesn't support it, nothing else must. Rather than going to the scriptures and then saying, look, the scriptures themselves are going to bring this forth on their own. And I think we can do this with a lot of passages then, especially pastors who are answering parishioners and just want to pick a Bible verse out to be that answer. Okay, okay, now here we go. This will settle it. Um, that sometimes we uh, can strip a, a passage of its richness um, by doing so. And in that way, he, he kind of gets at you can fall back on traditionalism or intellectualism uh, in that in that regard. Um what uh, He rounds that out, that section out with, once again, that the Bible is not a collection of proof passages. <coughs> and that um, it, it's kind of similar to me of when people do theology and they love to have these theology books that just are a collection of passages from um, systematicians or a collection, you know, what is it, the Plas? Is it Plas who has the what Luther says? Um, or you just you have a collection of Bible reference books, and you're you're going to be the guy who has the passage to throw out um, to answer every question. How it really rips all those things, strips them of their beauty. Because what are you going to them for? You're going to them for one thing to pull out and hit someone over the head with, um, rather than reading them them as what they were intended to be. And in that way, probably being able to make a, a much richer, more vibrant case. Um, for uh, for one's position, and I think this comes out especially too when he gets at this ecumenicism, but traditionalism too. Of um, how often in in trying to make what we think is for the right cause and uphold, and uphold and preserve the right things, don't we alienate the people that we want to also appreciate those things? Um, I think what Kaler is getting at is when we go to scripture to just mine it and. And, and be refreshed by it um, and to be uh, further convinced of what we hold to be true um, by having worked through it, we're able to make a much better case uh, to those in need in our own church body, to those outside of it, and things of that nature. I'm, I'm talking a lot, Mike. Anything else you have? So no, and I think he, 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 he follows up, okay, here's the proper method, um, that the at the apex stands the proposition of the forgiveness of sins. This has been called the material principle of theology, while the proposition of the divinity of Scripture is called the formal principle. And and we don't need to get into that too much, but just first of all, the idea that the forgiveness of sins is kind of what the whole thing's about, right? The whole thing is not about trying to be doctrinally pure. Um, we are doctrinally pure because we've been forgiven and we want to be um, we're doctrinally pure or strive to be because um, there's a danger of 
uh, you start pulling one string, eventually something's going to give when it comes to 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 justification. And just and this is not the clearest statement that I'll make, but it's not gospel reductionism to make sure that justification is the highlight of everything and not that we're orthodox versus heterodox. Um, that, that's, that's a dip, gospel reductionism is a different thing. And so kind of head off that accusation. Um, and, and even the doctrine of inerrancy, which I think maybe he's a little bit getting at here is he doesn't say this, but that means nothing <laughs> unless it is for my right. good. You know, we're not called to convert people to the doctrine of er- inerrancy. We're right. called, as he says, to preach the law. So they'll be terrified, but then preach the gospel. And then Hopefully they will believe in inerrancy because they've been convinced by the scriptures, but that's a byproduct of right. what the church is called to do. Otherwise you end up, as he says earlier, that the scriptures then just are used like a lawyer would use a codex. You know, this is, this is how you should live. This is the rule. Let's debate the rule like a lawyer might and parse all of these words out down to the word, down to everything. And you really lose, you really do lose the, the apex what he calls the material principle of theology. I'm being a little sloppy here with my terms, but the most important thing would be the forgiveness of sins. So the forgiveness of sins is primary from that gospel, then is going to flow um, uh, everything else. It's not, it's not the other way around. And, and we're kind of getting to something that we talk about in apologetics, which is presuppositionalism, that you first have to assume a certain doctrine such as inerrancy before you can get to, you can get to other doctrines, um, and, or or other arguments for the existence of God when it comes to apologetics. Well, fine, except the person on the street is not going to accept that the Bible is inerrant because the Bible said it's inerrant. It's circular logic, right? You have to win them over for Christ first. Right. And there's ways you can get out of that circular logic. Um, and that's for, for a different time. And we, we've kind of mentioned it before in our apologetics um, uh, episodes, but uh, kind of a byproduct, maybe a little bit of that legalism is that you end up not being about the evangel. And if you're not about the evangel, then your evangelism is going to be at best trying to convince somebody to join your club at worst, it's going to be, um, you better join our club or uh, you're going to hell kind of thing. It, uh, Yeah, and that's where he ends up getting to on page 252. I'm assuming that the page numbers are universal on these, that there's not been other editions put out. Um, he gets to that point and he says, As, for instance, when a preacher sets forth to a congregation all that a Christian must believe if he wants to be saved. The hearer's faith is made the object of faith, and it naturally sinks down to the level of an intellectual act of believing it to be true. That maybe a good way of putting it is he wants to make sure that the object of faith always remains Christ, and then we believe what we believe because of Christ, rather than our object of faith becoming our own faith, that we have the right faith, which then kind of sets Christ by the side. And I think in this connection, too, um, he warns against parochialism, which I think is a very important thing for people, too, because um, I'm a big believer that someone has to read all the right things before they read the wrong things, if that makes sense. Um, that uh, you shouldn't just throw people to the wolves right away. You have to catechize people 
but especially pastors that need to be able to read beyond their tribe. Um, they need to, to be able to read more broadly. Even when we're understanding, for instance, Walther or the Peepers or Kaler, we need to understand what they're responding to. We need to be able to read that. Um, when we want to be able to have a good ecumen- ecumenicism, which means you know, we want to be able to have a good conversation with the other pastor in town, um, a meaningful conversation, not for the sake of a false unity, but just because right, we care about... Um, why wouldn't we want them to have a, the right confession of the faith? Um, when we want to be able to reach out to people who aren't in our own parish, um, we need to, to, to be able to, to go beyond our boundaries. And so he, he notes on that same page, he says, particularly in this category belongs the constant allusion to one's own synod and its leaders as if there were no other Christians. And this is what Mike was getting at earlier. Um, one needs to appreciate one's own synod and leaders, right? You you should be in a church body because you agree with what it teaches, but at the same time, the end goal is not the church body. Um, Christ is what drives us or compels us to the church body to which we belong. And we fall back then um, not on, uh, you know, sometimes you'll talk to pastors from varieties of backgrounds, and I've talked to pastors, I have friends in all different denominations, and, you know, when you get to a conversation that maybe they start to get uncomfortable with or they don't want to have, they'll say, you know, well, you know, I'm a busy parish pastor, so I don't read much. I'm not a theologian. Um, I haven't done much since seminary. Well, that's very problematic then because the extent of your education and what you're feeding your people then is really, um, it stopped at what was supposed to now get you ready to learn for life and really grow. It's the seminary. It's planting the seed. It's not meant to be the end of one's education. Um, it's supposed to be when we're prepared um, to then go out and continue to grow, continue to learn, continue to engage. And so there can be a danger on the easy nature of just falling back on, um, you know, I'll, I'll pick on, um, you know, Missouri back in the day, um, the brief statement, or I suppose Wisconsin, this we believe, or, um, you know, uh, uh, if you're Lutheran World Federation, the Joint Declaration on Justification, uh, um, you know, to fall back on on things that have been said um, as if, you know, your random member with a serious question is going to go, oh, the brief statement says that? Now Now I understand. But to be able to willing... Uh, and willing to engage people in a way that respects um, the seriousness of the questions and the struggles that they're having. Yeah, and to defend our own synod a little bit, you know, I think which we're, I'm not bashing. Yeah, no, we, we, I think we're pretty good about saying. First of all, the seminary. You do not. I went after Missouri first. Yeah, there you go. You, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that you were. I just um, we're very good about saying the seminary. You come out of seminary not knowing anything. You're given the tools then to learn, right? And and so you can't rely on uh, you can't rest on your laurels. They're they're not that great anyway. Um, and also, you know, we repeatedly say, although I don't think it gets down to the parish level as probably as it as much as it should, but that if the Wisconsin Synod or the Lutheran Church, whatever it is, whatever denomination you're in, if they're not Orthodox anymore. Well, then you shouldn't have any denominational loyalty. You don't, you don't just, you, you're not, just because your name's on the register in the big book in the church office, that, that means squat, you know? And so you don't, you don't, 
it's just too easy of a thing to point to a document. It's too easy of a thing to point to a denomination. It's too easy of a thing to point to a person, whether it be the pastor, a seminary professor, a pope, um, a primate, whatever, a bishop, an archbishop, and say, see, he said that, so then it must be true. You respect that. Um, it carries weight, um, but but that's problematic. Yeah, and that's... Uh and I'm not bashing on Missouri either. I'm trying to use the close-to-home examples because uh, that's what I have experience with. And I will say, too, um, one of the things that I've appreciated about my um, encounters with uh, seminary professors and um, and really you know, dedicated seminaries, seminarians from the two Missouri Senate seminaries um, is the extent to which— uh, Many of them are encouraging or undertaking just a wide breadth of reading and, and reading beyond anything I did um, in Mequon, not because we weren't encouraged to, but because I was lazy and uh, Mike kept inviting me to go to the bar um, or whatever the case might be. But, uh, but yeah, those are just the church bodies I know best. But this is the same as the temptation in Rome to fall back on the Catholic Catechism or Second Vatican or the Council of Trent. It's just a very human thing. And I think it it's it's not something that is good for faith um, to not to view it as a burden to go back to the scriptures that gave faith life in the beginning, and to really wrestle with and dig in them. Um, you know the what a wonder, and we need to really I I really want an episode uh, on law and gospel after um, World War II because I think I've been reading a lot on that. And I think it'd be a fun one, but. Um, you know, Jacob wrestles God and God makes Jacob limp and that limp is a blessing. It reminds him he's dependent on Christ. He's dependent on God. And, you know, sometimes it's good for us to always walk for a, with a limp when it comes to our confession too, to realize that our confession is only good as, as good as the scriptures that give them life. And, and this is something I would say too, to the credit of um, our seminary, something they've been trying to do with the, the growing grace, this, uh, you know, continuing education thing is to really encourage pastors to um, not just put their books on the shelf when they move into the office of their first call and then leave them there, but to be continuing to study, continuing to engage, whether it be um, at the seminary for a summer quarter or what do they call them, the PSIs, Pastoral Studies Institutes that they do. Um, and I know that's been a push now um, with Fort Wayne and St. Louis too, to really get people realizing um, your preaching, your confession, your pastoring will be as good as your willingness to constantly just want to go back to the scriptures. Um, to want to read Galatians again and say, does Paul really teach justification by grace through faith? Rather than saying, Paul, it's a given, teaches justification by grace through faith. And I'm going to read through Galatians 1 until I've got a verse to prove it. Um, but to really go through and, and wrestle with it uh, as well. Not in, a, not in that you're doubting the scriptures, but that you respect them so much um, that you know that there's a joy in them convincing you of that again and again and again. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, maybe one comment and then I want to read some his final conclusion here. Cause I I'll, think I'll let you close it out, Mike, because I've said what yeah. I have to say. Um, <clears throat> You talked about being able to have a discussion with the local pastor, not of your denomination. Um, yeah, there's concerns there of false ecumenism and, uh, you know, uh, a false unity. I get that. Um, but I think you'd be surprised how deeply a lot of these guys have thought. And I think you'd be surprised that they know they know Lutheran theology. If not Lutheran theology, they know Luther, you know, uh, 
we we don't regularly quote Calvin in the Lutheran Church because we don't have to because Luther said quite a bit, and Melanchthon said quite a bit, and Chemnitz wrote quite a bit, and so we kind of and and then the Post Reformation Fathers too. We don't really need to go to Calvin, even though Calvin said some very, very wonderful and insightful things. But the Calvinist is going to quote Luther. The Roman Catholic, more and more, is going to quote Luther. They know that. They know him. And it's part of being in the middle between um, uh, a Protestantism on one side, the left, and then Roman Catholicism on the right. Um, but there are places where you can have a conversation and those conversations will help you understand your people better and theology better. Um, if for no other reason than just a different language and, and you talked about a little bit of that, um, being able to read widely and I would recommend that you listen to the two episodes we had with, uh, uh Dr. Mark Paustian on, on reading quote unquote unsafe authors. Um, I think that those are pretty good episodes just because he was there. Um, and then maybe just to kind of conclude what, with what Kaler had said, and he, he concluded his essay with, with kind of a similar idea, talking about how, and maybe I'm, I'm reading into this a little bit, but uh, the idea that you, you know, you've, you've, uh, you've, you've gone through all of the doctrinal statements and you've, you've, you've heard about this, uh, you know, controversy and you've done the exegesis and stuff like that. Um, and then I'll read this last paragraph in this way, the minds of our Christians will again have subjects on which they can exercise their acumen, uh, after they have grown tired and dull through the old battles, which no longer stimulate new ideas, the gospel restores vitality. It also restores a deeper recognition of sin. It restores greater joy in believing, and with it restores also the energy to overcome the intellectual, I don't know what that word is, of our time. Um, <laughs> Milieu, was it? Or? No. M-A-R-A-S. Morass? Morassmus. Morassmus? Wow. I'm not looking at it now. So M-A-R-A-S-M-U-S. Anyway, uh, I think the point there is, and I've said this to my parish quite a few times um there were some old battles um for our context it was the battle over the bible um and that battle never goes away ever undernourishment undernourishment all right um it never goes away but there's new battles that come out and um and uh just because they're different and you're tired <laughs> and you don't want to think through it um, I ask that you have the same vitality that you had when you fought those old battles when you were a young man, that you would have them for right now too. And along the way, you will be invigorated and take a look at these old doctrines in a new way. And as Kaler says, uh, have a recognition of sin and appreciation for the depravity of man and appreciation we don't mean in a positive way there. Um, but then along with that will be a greater appreciation in a positive way for the gospel. And it will re-energize you in a lot of different ways. And I think even though we're young, uh, only being 40 years old and only having... It doesn't feel young. Just yeah. So you know, 12 years, you know, 10, 12, 13 years in the parish. Um, there were lulls. And then there was something that you rediscovered or something uh, there was a 
doctrinal problem within the congregation or within the synod or some article that you read that made you rethink things. He got fired up again. And when he got fired up again, um, you appreciated law and gospel again, and your preaching got better, and your teaching got better, and your just overall life was re-energized. And to once in a while do that, like you said, reread Galatians. Our big mission moments tended to come after doctrinal, um, really having to fight over over a doctrine, election controversy, the split with Missouri. Yeah, I mean, the same thing on a corporate basis. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and uh, th- that kind of, I don't know, angst is the right word, but unfectung uh, 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 can can produce some really great things in the future. And, and so just to be revitalized, not to be caught into, okay, we got it all figured out. Now somebody is being... Somebody's stepping off the reservation, so let's fight these old battles again to either kick them out or get them back in, but rather to be revitalized by the gospel. And the main purpose that you're here, the apex of the doctrine on which the church stands or falls, uh, justification through Christ, uh, uh, that that really is really is the revitalizing thing that will help our doctrine in the future. And I said I'd be quiet, but when Lutherans do that right, it always leads back to that place that Mike just got to, because we do all theology through the lens of Christ crucified for sinners, Christ um, as just, justification for the sinner by grace through faith in Christ, um, through law and gospel. And so whatever we might be having to be revisit as far as whatever doctrine or practice it might be, if we're doing it right as Lutherans at least, it's going to lead us back to the chief article and it's going to lead us back to what truly renews and reinvigorates. And don't get down on, okay, this doctrine in the world is not being appreciated. Oh my goodness, throw your hands up and give up. Appreciate that, that would apply it to the gospel, yeah. Yeah, appreciate that there are a lot of people fighting for the gospel and the gospel is still being preached. It's being sung in the liturgy um, in all denominations. Uh, it may be obscured in, in some more than others, but uh, be revitalized by that. Let's not... The sky's not falling because we don't understand this particular doctrine. The sky's falling because of sin and the world's going to come but uh, come to an end. But with that comes Jesus Christ and his second coming. And uh, that kind of that kind of grace is really is not something that makes us want to do less theology or less evangelism this idea that everything's going to be okay actually reinvigorates you because it doesn't depend on you and there's a certain sense of freedom there yeah and, and the sky falling isn't always necessarily the fault of some external enemy sometimes god is letting the, the sky fall because he wants us to um, get off our asses and and do some theology and, and get back into the scriptures to kind of reinvigorate us. Um, you know, those are times God uses. Uh, sometimes he allows the cross to press down on us as well for our own good. And not only for our own good, but sometimes, oftentimes for the good of the very people that we feel are leading to the sky falling. Um, and so uh, that we... I am the worst complainer. I am the worst person to see in anything um, the opposite of a silver lining. Um, I There was never anything that came up in the parish that I thought was a threat to the parish that I went, this is an opportunity. Um, but I will say, if I ever grew as a pastor and, the, and any fond memories I have of the parish that I look back to, go back to relationships that developed from or congregational developments that came out of um, 
the sky falling or a cross being pressed down, if that makes sense, Mike. And I think that is just, um, I'm just echoing what, what I think you were getting at. No, absolutely. And I think that, that that's just good advice, especially um, if we have any young pastors or seminarians, and, and I know we do that are listening, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, it's hard to say, I'm going to be wise in the future, <laughs> you know, but you will be but you will be, and it's going to come through some harsh things too. And the best advice that we can give is just keep going back to the gospel. And every, every Sunday you get up and you preach and you go, where are all the people? Um, you should also say, I can't believe anybody showed up. And how wonderful it is that I have the, the opportunity amongst all of the problems of the world and the problems of the church to preach the gospel. And if you're going to go down a legalistic road, and your preaching is going to be, now I got to figure out how to solve this problem and get them back on the right path. You're being illegalistic and it'll kill you. It'll kill your ministry. It'll probably, it'll probably kill you. It may kill your marriage. It may kill your, it certainly will kill your joy. Um, but get up in the, in, the, in, the, in the pulpit no matter what's happening in the world in your church body, in your congregation, and preach the gospel uh, week in and week out. That That's that, that's your only hope. You know what I, I really think um, Kayler was trying to say is that uh, even in the midst of these controversies, and it's you know he had plenty that were developing at that time, is that uh, Dona, don't let things kill our joy as easily as, as uh, we are tempted to let them do. And never forget, even when it seems like it might be easier to fall back on the law for something that the gospel is uh, given to accomplish, to just, when it comes down to it, let the bird fly. Came home last night, all full of lush, my babe began to fuss, and I said, honey, honey, I don't care what the people are thinking, I'm not drunk, I'm just drinking, I said, my Get me down. Another round. 